0: Hey, everyone. I am Fran. And I'm Tom. And we are the co-hosts of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast.
1: Yeah, and on the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, we talk about native plants, obviously, and also a lot of ecological topics. We have sit down with experts. We sit down with authors. We sit down with college professors and really dive into some of these topics that you might not always think about when it comes to ecology and native plants.
0: And, you know, doing this, we have a good time too. We have a couple laughs, so. yeah, it's a lot of fun. (laughs) So uh, make sure you tune in every Friday and until then, keep it native. That's one rescue I'll never forget. And there is no other one that could top this.
2: Hey humans, welcome back. In episode 1, we discussed the issue of deer overpopulation on the east end of Long Island, New York. We dove into the East End's history of land development, learned how the species came to be so overabundant, and introduced the local conflict that has ensued as a result of it all. Today, we're going to be taking a look at the world of wildlife rescue. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Wildlife rescuers have an important part to play in this story. While pretty much everyone on the East End feels the effects of overpopulation, car accidents, tick-borne illnesses, destruction of ornamental plants, etc., rescuers experience this issue in a way that no one else does. They work directly with injured deer, trying to save as many lives as they can. They're not afraid to push back against people who wish harm upon these animals. And as far as humans go, they're the closest ones to understanding this conflict from a deer's perspective. Although the work they do is incredibly gratifying, there's also a dark side to it. These rescuers bear witness to scenes you probably can't even imagine. And despite the trauma they've experienced over and over again in these high-stress situations, they keep coming back for more. That's how much they care. So today, I'm going to introduce you to two of the East End's most fearless wildlife rescuers. Some of what I learned from them shocked me. I thought I knew everything I needed to know about the East End. I spent the first 18 years of my life here, after all. But during these conversations, I uncovered information that made me question, do I even know my own hometown? I've learned that there are some dark, sinister secrets hidden within our community. And when it comes to revealing them, these rescuers are not holding back. I'm Eve Bishop, and this is Dear Humans. Before diving into this story, I need to issue a quick warning. This episode is going to be a tough one. Some of what you're about to hear is graphic and may be disturbing to some listeners. If you're listening with kids, you'll want to come back to this episode another time. But first, I need to get you acquainted with a very special place. It's called the Evelyn Alexander Wildlife Rescue Center, located in Hampton Bays, Evelyn Alexander is a rescue and rehabilitation center for wildlife in need. The staff there helps all kinds of creatures, including turtles, raptors, foxes, snakes, bunnies, and of course, deer. Each year, more than 1,000 deer make their way to the wildlife center. According to Adrian Gillespie, a rehabber at the center, Evelyn Alexander is a hot spot for deer. They're one of the only wildlife rehabilitation centers on all of Long Island that takes deer. And there are three main causes that tend to bring these animals in, in the first place.
1: We get in most of the deer across Long Island. So they get hit by cars. That's the number one thing that we get deer in for. They get stuck in people's fences and they get shot.
2: Evelyn Alexander has made itself known as a resource to animals and people all across Long Island. If a civilian finds a sick or injured animal, they can call the rescue center. The person who finds the animal can bring them in themselves, or the center will send out a blast to their list of volunteers to see if any of them can pick up the animal and bring it safely to the center for rehabilitation. Adrian told me that the center typically sees at least three deer per week, with influxes during hunting season and the summer. The more people there are on the east end, the more deer there are in need of rehabilitation. More hunters means more arrows, more vacationers, more cars. It's safe to say that the rehabbers at Evelyn Alexander are overwhelmed with deer.
1: We get calls, endless calls. They go all night long, too.
2: None of the work that happens at the center could be accomplished without the help of its rescuers. One of those rescuers is Jane Gill. You heard from her last episode.
3: The staff there is so unbelievable. They get there at 6 a.m. and they don't leave till 7 p.m. at night. They are so dedicated. It's something that I've never seen before, and I'm so impressed by each and every one of them.
2: Jane's humble, but her dedication to wildlife is equally remarkable as that of Evelyn Alexander's rehabbers. There have been many occasions in which I've called Jane and she said something along the lines of, I can't talk right now. I'm driving an injured duck to the wildlife center. Or, hey, I'm setting up a space in my house to foster an abandoned baby raccoon. Can we catch up later? I've known Jane since before I can even remember. My older sister and her daughter were in the same grade at our elementary school. And Jane's been a friend of the family since I was a toddler. Jane has had a huge impact on my life. When I decided to stop eating meat at age 15, she sent me books to read about vegetarianism. She gave me a tour of Evelyn Alexander when I was a senior in high school, introducing me to the animals and teaching me all about the work she does there. I credit Jane for my interest in wildlife. As a kid, I always looked forward to her coming over for dinner. She never failed to share a crazy animal-related story, and I was completely fascinated. In all my years of knowing Jane, one thing has always been true. She adores animals. I would go as far as to say she possesses a magic touch. It's like every animal she's ever come into contact with just knows. Jane is on their side. My childhood dog, who was anxious around most people and never let anyone pick her up, would leap into Jane's arms whenever she came over for dinner. When Jane first showed me around Evelyn Alexander a few years back, I witnessed the same special bond between her and many of the animals there. They knew they were in the presence of a good, gentle human. But it wasn't until I sat down to speak with Jane for this podcast that I learned where her connection to animals truly comes from.
3: (laughs) I feel like I'm talking to a psychiatrist. (laughs) Where did it all start? Well, actually, You know, growing up, I was really left to my own devices um, because I had four older siblings and they were all off in college by the time I kind of was growing up a bit. So I found myself going around the neighborhood, catching grasshoppers and butterflies and baby songbirds and things and bringing them home and helping them to get better or just keeping them and studying them. (laughs) And then, you know, we spent the entire summer on the beach because my mother worked in the school system. So she would have off all summer and we would just go to the beach every day. And I started studying all the ecosystems in the jetties at the beach because I really had nobody to play with. So I started doing that and then bringing things home from the beach and setting up little ecosystems at home.
2: This childhood hobby turned into a habit throughout Jane's life. As an adult, she started keeping an eye out for wild animals in need of help.
3: Throughout my life, I just always, when I'd see an animal, I'd bring it to whatever wildlife center wherever I was living. But when I was living in Atlantic Beach, there was a woman there who had a whole rehabilitation thing set up in her garage. And she would rehabilitate seabirds. I was fascinated, I don't know how I met her, but somehow I met her. Somebody must have told me, oh, yeah, go to Bridget. Bridget will take care of the animal. So then I started working with her. And I started helping her. And that became something I really loved. She also was the first person to fence off the piping plover areas in the beach. And this is when they were really endangered. I mean, they still are today. Then she was very sick with cancer. So when she was in the hospital on her last days when she was dying, she said, I want my ashes to be spread over the piping plovers and their nests and it's illegal you're not permitted to do that and we said of course of course we will do that so one day she was um she had passed and her husband called me and he said we're going to take the ashes and go to the beach so i was with a friend of mine i said we've got to go very quickly and we were racing to get to atlantic beach to meet her husband and throw out all her ashes as we were driving There was a huge gull in the middle of the road with a broken wing. And I said to my friend, who just is not a big animal person, stop, I have to get that bird. And he said, I'm not stopping in the middle of the road and you're not putting that bird in my car. And I said, yes, we are, we're getting that bird. But all I was thinking about was like, that was Bridget. (laughs) That was Bridget. And I needed to make sure that bird was okay. We ended up getting the bird and I took the bird and to this animal hospital in Franklin Square. And I said to the vet, listen, this is a very important goal. Because to me, that was Bridget saying to me, I have left now. You are to take over. This is your job now. From that day on, I really became very involved with wildlife and, you know, helping to rescue and rehabilitate.
0: I did what I knew was right because I chose life over death.
2: This is the second wildlife rescuer I want to introduce you to today. His name is Del Cullum. Del and Jane's worlds collided on a tragic day that neither of them will ever forget. But before we get into that, I want you to get to know the fiery man who would move mountains to save an animal's life. Dell was born and raised in Amagansett, a town on the East End. He comes from a big family and spent a lot of time with his grandparents growing up.
0: My grandparents were so in touch with all animals, wild and domestic. As a kid, I remember looking out and watching my grandfather feeding wild rabbits. That's a lot more difficult than it sounds. They're just not very trusting animals. And They don't allow folks to get that close to them. And of course, swans. Swans can be a bit aggressive. However, my grandfather used to feed them and get right up in front of them. And never once did he have an issue. The family called that the shine. It was an inner sense of feeling, whether it be an aura that you felt or you could also gift the shine. There was some connection that we could have with wildlife. And I used to see it in my grandparents. And my father also had it. He used to raise birds. And I've seen pictures and I've seen his connection with animals that as I grew up, I saw. Didn't realize what it was at that point, but now I look back and I say, yeah, that was his connection. I feel the same way. Whenever I'm dealing with an animal, whether it's a removal or a rescue or even just an encounter, if I take the moment to acknowledge that animal. It doesn't have to communicate in words. They look at your eyes, you look in their eyes. They get a lot of information from you. They don't understand your voice, but they can understand the tone of your voice and the way you speak, just like we do. When we speak to people that don't speak the same language, we do it all the time. I'm well aware that, you know, I don't have any mystical or psychic ability. It's just, I understand that a connection with these animals is absolutely real. We all have it. It's just how strong can you exercise that in yourself and make it work for you. I've made it work for me.
2: After graduating high school, Dell joined the Navy and traveled around the globe but he eventually returned to the East End to spend time with his aging parents. It was here that his career as an animal rescuer began to blossom.
0: You know, I had been working with animals and doing trapping in other states. I just didn't come here with that intent. However, I didn't really know what I actually was gonna do. I just came here for my parents' sake. But as I got here, I realized that uh, there were issues. And the deer was probably the first issue that came up, but it quickly spread amongst all animals because at the same time there's a deer issue, New York State Department of Health also had a law going around that the DEC was enforcing saying that all raccoons that were trapped by licensed trappers had to be euthanized right there on the spot, right in the customer's yard. No questions asked. They had to be put down. I started to question some of these things, that one in particular, because I I couldn't imagine that anyone was actually falling for that, where the state could pass a law saying that I had to kill another living thing. Made no sense to me. So I said to myself, you know, there's no animal that needs to be killed to be caught. I had been trained how to do this the years prior. I was always a no-kill, I never killed. So I did a little research and I came here and found out everybody was killing, everything. These pest control companies, they trap squirrels, they kill them, they trap raccoons, they kill them, trap an opossum, they kill them. Why? Well, basically so they didn't have to drive around with them all day and take up the space in their car. And then I started to realize the methods And that got to be a little stressful because one of the main methods was these folks were carrying around water tanks on their trucks and they would literally drown these animals on the spot. And the state was allowing it. So I knew there was a problem here. And I set out at that point. I said, you know what? This can't be right. I'm going to go into business and I'm going to announce to everybody that I will trap and I won't kill anything certainly there's a clientele of folks that'll accommodate me and maybe allow me to survive here well i was overwhelmed with the response and that's when i learned that this town although divided was certainly not the minority being the folks who loved our animals it was real close in fact we might even have the majority just didn't have a forum to talk about it But there were a lot of folks out here that loved our wildlife. And if they had known, or when they did find out, that these animals that are being trapped were being killed, they didn't want anything to do with that. So they'd call me. And that's where the ball started rolling. And once I had that under control, and I grabbed an amazing amount of clientele from all these other pest control companies who weren't very happy about it, but quite frankly, we're talking about the lives of animals. So I wasn't really too concerned of how they felt.
2: Dell decided to take things a step further and start a nonprofit for wildlife rescue.
0: I feel at this point, Eve, that we have done so much to burden these animals, and we continue to do exactly what we know is wrong to be doing to these animals. We still don't regulate it. We have no management in place. The deer is a great example that my work isn't done yet.
2: Dell and Jane have both done countless deer rescues. Some have been successful, some have not. But there is one rescue that has continued to haunt them both for years. It brought them together and resulted in a shared bond that could only be born from tragedy.
3: I did a rescue with Dell once a while back. I was called to the rescue in East Hampton and then he was called. And it was a doe that was pregnant with twins. And um, we didn't think the twins were viable. Um, so we were gonna take them out and we we're
0: gonna try to save her.
2: I asked Dell if he remembered this rescue.
0: How could I forget it? It's how me and Jane met, actually. I received a call from a neighbor, and they told me that, Dell, we have a doe, a large doe who is very disoriented, walking around our yard, and a fawn, a fetus of a fawn, is sticking out of her back end, looking quite dead and Uh, seems to be not exiting her completely. So just with that visual in mind, I threw all my stuff into my truck. I called my wife. She came with me. And we went over there where we saw just that. This upset the neighbors quite well. They had seen nothing like this before. Quite frankly, neither had I. I'm a bit more conditioned than most folks. So I kind of just went into the mode of helping the animal. At which point, the mother dropped to the ground. So my wife took the deer's head, put it on her lap, as she was slowly fading away. Her back end of the living deer, the back end, had evidence of necrosis. Her vaginal area was rotting. This had been going on for a while. She had baby deer in her that were decomposing and they were decomposing in her uterus, which had now started to decompose itself, including the exit.
2: It was at that point that Dell realized this was no standard rescue. The rotting occurring inside this animal couldn't be explained by a gunshot, a car accident, or malnourishment. Something much more sinister was going on here. Not knowing exactly what to do, Dell called a friend of his who's a veterinarian, she told him that he needed to remove the babies from the doe's uterus. So he greased up his arm and reached in.
0: At which point uh, Jane showed up.
3: Somebody I knew called me and then called Del. Anyway, we were both there. Our goal was to save her because we didn't hear a heartbeat with the babies and
0: one of them was coming out already. Realizing we were already in the middle of this situation, she continued to ease the deer, keeping her comfortable while I tried to remove these dead babies from her uterus.
3: It was so intense. When you're in that situation, you're just doing what you can to make sure that the animal's comforted and is experiencing the least stress possible. Um, And if you can save their life, that's even better.
2: Despite the intensity of the situation, Jane explained that as she held the doe in her arms, she noticed her breathing was becoming steadier and steadier. This pained animal, straddling life and death, somehow seemed to be calming down. It was the shine. I held
3: her down and comforted her. I know she calmed down. I was patting her, talking to her, and she really knew, I believe, that I was taking care of her. He went in and pulled one out, and then he
0: pulled the other one out. The second one was a little tougher. I could barely take it. I was able to somehow manage to just do one last tug and got the baby out, and behind the baby came about a gallon of sepsis, fluid, black as pitch, with a smell that knocked me on my, my back and made me vomit. And I remember at that point the relief in that mother. It was like the pressure alone, the pain, had left her body. And she let out a sigh of relief. And she did it again. And she breathed in and she breathed out with no with no restriction, it was so much freedom for her, and then she passed. Just like that.
2: As Dell recounted this heartbreaking rescue story, I found myself in shock. What a terrible loss of life, and what a valiant effort on behalf of these two rescuers. But, there was something else. What possible explanation could there be for the rotting taking place inside of the Stowe's body? It sounded like something straight out of a horror movie. It certainly didn't seem like a natural death, nor did it appear to be something that a car accident or starvation could explain. There had to be some bigger reason for all of this. And as Dell and Jane eventually came to find out, there was.
0: This happened to be during the East Hampton Village sterilization issue where they hired this white buffalo organization, which were a bunch of hunters, to come in and uh, sterilize all these deer using a tranquilizer dart. They tranquilize them at places like our village nature trail, you know, sanctuaries where animals had spent decades and decades trusting these locations. They swooped in and bang, bang, bang. They would tranquilize them with a severely heavy dose of tranquilization. They would put them on a stretcher, throw them in a truck. The truck would drive three miles to the garage where the trucks are maintained in a tent. And they did these operations under strictly unsanitary conditions. God knows what kind of instruments they were using. These animals were lied on their back, their eyes bound, their hands and feet bounded to the table, tongues hanging out, very bad situation. And they had their ovaries removed right there. At which point they were stitched up, brought back to the field, and let go within hours after the procedure.
2: A few years ago, East Hampton Village implemented the sterilization program. It was an attempt to reduce deer populations by sterilizing females, but it went wrong. Very, very wrong.
0: Several died right away, several died on the table. Some of these animals weren't even females when they were shot. They thought they were, but they made a mistake. So, there was a lot of uh, residual negativity to this whole operation.
2: One of the casualties of this failed plan was the dough that Del and Jane tried so desperately to save. She had been hastily operated on. Her ovaries were removed with two babies inside of her. The sepsis occurring in her body, which killed both her and her offspring, was the result of a sloppy surgery that never should have happened in the first place.
0: The deer was dead. The babies were dead. This was a result of the sterilization operation.
2: The village of East Hampton knew their plan had gone awry when deer who had been operated on started showing up around town with clear signs of rotting. This doe and her babies weren't the only ones, and the village did not want word to get out. As Dell and Jane held the dead doe in their arms, someone else showed up. It was at that moment that it became clear to Dell there was something covert going on here.
0: At that point, Somebody else showed up who really wasn't looking after the best interest of the deer. She was more concerned about not letting this come out as being a result of the sterilization issue. And before I could tell her to stop or before I could tell her that the deer was already dead, she jabbed a needle into it with some sedation, which poisoned the body. You know, now if there was going to be an autopsy, you know, she thwarted that, which I think was really the intent. And about two weeks later, I got another call. It was the same issue, except there were no babies involved. It was a female whose incision had been infected so horribly that it just fell, fell in somebody's driveway. And when I got there, it was still alive as maggots were crawling out of her back end. And it was at that point, after I had the police officer put that animal down immediately, And ironically, that same lady ended up reporting that she was there. And she said, oh, there was no maggots. There was no decomposing. This animal wasn't sick it had been hit by a car. Uh, She was some piece of work. Jane knows who she is. You may know her. We're not friends anymore. That was the second incident that was clearly and directly related to the uh, surgery from this sterilization program that the village thought was so necessary and was such a tremendous failure.
2: There were many other incidents like these two. Adrian and other rehabbers at Evelyn Alexander witnessed them. People would bring deer who had infections, open incisions, and all kinds of other horrible side effects from the surgery into the center. But for most of these creatures, it was too late. The damage was done. The surgeries were performed very quickly in the field, giving the deer no time to recover from such a major procedure. Here's Adrian, the rehabber we heard from earlier.
1: The problem with that is when you generally get your animals made or neutered, they're like, oh, make sure that this animal stays. Um, you know, not not active, make sure that they stay in, maybe keep them in the carrier for 24 hours, you know, just don't limit their jumping. But with the deer, they probably were jumping over fences, running, hitting sticks and twigs. And so what was happening is that people were finding them where they were really sick, and they were getting infections from sterilization. And then they were also opening the incisions and their insides were falling out. Like it was graphic and horrible to see.
2: The village did what they could to keep this failed operation under wraps, but rescuers like Dell haven't forgotten about it.
0: Many years have gone by now. It's been like, what, three, going on five years maybe since that, and uh, nothing had ever changed. It, It didn't make a difference. It was a complete waste of money, and deer are just as prevalent now as they were then, and we continue to build houses, continue to take away their habitat, we continue to push them into smaller pockets of land, and they have no place left to go but the little piece that you've left them.
2: We'll be back with more, right after the break. I want to tell you about another podcast I think you might enjoy. Threshold is a Peabody Award-winning podcast that explores human relationships with the natural world. In their newest season, Threshold takes a deep dive into the mission facing all of humanity right now, containing the climate crisis. On paper, the world has agreed to limit global heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels. In reality, we are not on track to meet that goal. But the window is not yet fully closed. If we take decisive action this decade, we may still be able to prevent warming beyond 1.5 degrees. But will we? That's the question facing every person alive right now, and the question driving the new season of threshold, time to 1.5. Listen to Threshold now, wherever you get your podcasts. I was shocked to learn about East Hampton Village's failed sterilization attempt. I had no idea that something so sinister was happening right around the corner from me. The plan, in addition to being cruel and gruesome, clearly didn't work, which is why the people behind it kept it hidden from the public. After hearing this story, I started to question, should we have any hope for improving the East End's deer situation? Is there any way the local government could implement a deer management plan that would be both effective and humane? A plan that wouldn't result in unnecessary pain and loss of life? Here's Dell again.
0: When you have to resort to death to solve a problem, you're not right. Death or killing something is not an element of solution unless you're a terrorist or you're fighting in a war. Okay, so enough with this
2: killing crap. I asked Dell what a no-kill solution to our deer issues would look like. He was eager to share his ideas with me. But first, I needed him to take a step back and help me illustrate how we got here in the first place, from a deer's point of view.
0: Say I have a 10-acre lot, and on there I have two houses, and on that fenced-in area I have 50 deer, okay? Everybody's living happy, everybody's doing what they do. All of a sudden, I decide I want to build a third house, and a fourth house, and a fifth house. My property doesn't get any bigger, but I'm not worried about what the deer are going to do. I'm concerned about Dell and his houses. So now I've got five houses on my property and those same 50 deer are now pushed into smaller pockets. They can barely move. I took all their space away. Now, let's look at the big picture in reality. You build all these houses and you never stop. Well, you're taking away habitat. Every house you build, every parking lot you build, every lot you clear, whether you build on it or not, You've destroyed the habitat for a wildlife creature, in this case, a deer.
2: As more and more houses get built and fences get put up, it becomes virtually impossible for deer to make it to the backwoods. Well, they can, but they have to travel along the roads to do so.
0: And who's on the roads? People. People see these deer constantly. The first thing they do is go, oh my God, these deer, they're all over the road. Yeah. Because we put them there. We forced them there. So you've got all these fences, which by the way is all illegal because there are rules and regulations that are required in the village and the town when you construct fencing on your property. And the number one rule is you can't enclose your entire yard with a fence. Everybody breaks the rule. Nobody's out there enforcing it to fix it. That's an issue of some of these other departments in the town, and they know the problem is so vast that they don't know where to start. So they're not starting at all. If we can't do anything, let's just ignore it, and hopefully nobody will say anything, because most of the time they don't, except for Del
2: Cullum. Until this conversation, I had no idea that this type of fencing was illegal. Why would I? I see them everywhere I go. And with no one enforcing this law, There's no way to stop homeowners from putting them up. So now what?
0: Every block, every street, and every road should have what's called a wildlife corridor. And a wildlife corridor can be 10, 12, 15 feet wide in between property. It could be an easement owned by the town, or it could be two neighbors saying, hey, let's do what's right, benefit everybody, and let's share three feet or four feet each of our side property and give our neighborhood the benefit.
2: But what exactly does a wildlife corridor do?
0: The deer are going to use those corridors. Not only are they going to use them and get off the roadsides, they're going to want to get in there and hang out in there because now they don't have to worry about these cars whizzing by. It's an alleyway that leads them to the backwoods to where these animals are going to ultimately go to and want to anyway. You put a corridor there, the deer will use it. They absolutely will and it'll solve the problem. I've got one on my property. We have never in 10 years had a deer get hit on either my road or my neighbor's road where it comes out, not one, not one. And we have deer, we have them here. They hang out here in my yard. We have a nature preserve right across the street and they all come right down this corridor and we never see him on the road. That's how easy it is. Was the town interested in this idea? Not at all.
2: Dell is a member of the East Hampton Town Board. The board hosts the town's Deer Management Committee, which Dell has tried time and time again to exert some positive influence over. But when he proposed the idea of enforcing wildlife corridors, it was brushed off.
0: I brought this up multiple times to the village board, the town board, and specifically the town supervisor, who was all ears about the idea, but nobody will act on it. Nobody will act on it. Or they'll think of an excuse. There's no give. There's no give. You know, everybody's screaming for a solution, but nobody's even trying. This is all common sense, okay? We just tend to ignore common sense when it's not convenient or can't quickly solve the problem, okay? we rather hide behind it and say, ooh, I don't know the answer to this. I'm just not gonna talk about it. That way I won't get in trouble. Me? I talk about it. I get in trouble. I keep the conversation alive because it is an issue. It's not gonna go away by doing nothing. It's only gonna worsen the situation for you and for them, for the animals and for people. Really, you know, I'm not just standing up for the deer. I'm standing up for everybody. All life is what I'm aiming for, you know? It's to benefit all life.
2: Sloppy decision-making by the local government including the failed sterilization attempt, makes it difficult for wildlife rescuers to do their jobs safely and effectively. But bad policymaking on a larger scale can be equally challenging. The rehabbers at Evelyn Alexander have witnessed it firsthand. In 2016, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation implemented a new rule that makes it virtually impossible for rehabbers to save most of the deer they get in. This regulation states that rehabbers are not permitted to have adult deer in their care for longer than 48 hours. If the deer is not able to be treated and released back into the wild within that time frame, rehabbers are forced to euthanize them. Before, deer could be kept at the center for as long as necessary in order to successfully rehabilitate them. And what staff members have
1: realized is that time is crucial for recovery. Here's Adrian Unfortunately, what we've learned with the deer is that they don't do well with amputations. When they come in here and they lose a leg, we can try to see if they'll do okay. If it's a female, we will release them. If they are a male, they generally need all four limbs to survive. So if a deer comes in and has a broken leg, it's obviously not going to get out in 48 hours.
2: Because of this rule, many of the deer who come to the center have little to no chance at survival. So why did the DEC implement it in the first place? Well, their explanation is twofold. One, the DEC doesn't want wildlife rehabbers to have animals in their possession long-term. In doing so, there's the possibility of these animals being treated like pets. If deer get too comfortable with humans, the DEC says, it could alter their behavior. A fair point, it seems, except wouldn't this be a concern for all animals, not just deer? Why then does this DEC regulation only apply to deer? Well, their second justification is that this new rule will help prevent the spread of chronic wasting disease, or CWD, a neurological illness that only occurs in cervids. So that would be deer, moose, and elk. It's fatal, and there's currently no treatment for it. What's concerning about CWD is that it spreads from animal to animal through bodily fluid contact meaning that if a deer infected with CWD is re-released into the wild and doesn't end up surviving, another animal could eat that meat and become infected too. Moreover, studies have shown that CWD poses a risk to certain types of non-human primates, like monkeys, that eat meat from CWD-infected animals. Scientists have become concerned that there may also be a risk to people who are exposed to CWD-infected meat, aka hunters and their dinner guests. Since 1997, the World Health Organization has insisted that it is important to keep all agents of CWD from entering the human food chain. For these reasons, if deer can't be safely released within 48 hours, the DEC says, they've got to go. But Adrienne is suspicious of this explanation. She and many of her colleagues think there's another motivation
1: behind this change. I think that's their way of controlling the population.
2: When the DEC implemented this new rule, Rehabbers at Evelyn Alexander were not happy. They immediately started to notice a change in how many deer they were able to save.
1: It really has affected our success rate with the deer and how many deer that we have. When I first started working here, we used to have adult deer in and out of this place, and and we had a deer pen that was made, and it's big and and nice for them. They have natural foliage, and there was no adult deer out there this year. At one point,
2: Administrators at Evelyn Alexander decided to take the DEC to court. They argued that the new regulations were, quote, "...irrational, arbitrary, capricious,
1: and an abuse of discretion." It was a lengthy court battle. But they were unsuccessful. Unfortunately lost in court with them, but they still don't have a good working relationship with us, something that we hope to repair over time. The court
2: ruled that the DEC's 48-hour rule was neither arbitrary, capricious, nor an abuse of discretion. They concluded that the regulation was rational, since 48 hours is enough time for a deer in need of a short rehabilitation to be stabilized and released. Additionally, the court declared that this rule is consistent with evidence in the record that an adult deer unable to stabilize within the 48-hour window is unable to be successfully rehabilitated. While it may be true that a deer that is severely injured, say four broken legs and a broken back, may not ever be able to make a full recovery, what about an animal that has just one broken bone? If afforded more than 48 hours for rehabilitation, wouldn't you think that animal would be able to make a full recovery? The notion that no animal that is unable to recover within 48 hours would ever be able to recover is, quite frankly, ridiculous. Imagine if you broke your leg and the doctor said, well, you certainly won't be recovering fully within two days. You may as well just die. While the public health and behavioral arguments seem to hold up, this reasoning clearly does not. Now, I'm obviously coming at this from a biased perspective. I want rescuers like Dell and Jane to be able to save as many animals as possible. I also understand that sometimes... Some lives must be lost for the greater good of the ecosystem. I can understand why the DEC wants to regulate deer rehabilitation. Chronic wasting disease and too much human-animal interaction could be dangerous to both animals and people. But, to me, the 48-hour rule seems like an arbitrary regulation the DEC is using to solve a different problem—overpopulation. So here we are. Evelyn Alexander's rehabbers are now forced to comply with the DEC's regulations. For people like Adrian, who dedicate their life's work to these animals, it's a tough pill
1: to swallow. It's awful and it stings and it's definitely changed things. For us, it's changed for the worse, but I don't know if the DEC sees it that way. They probably see it as something that is easy because now we're Euthanizing more deer than we are treating. Um, So, we're helping with population control. So, I think they see it as something that is effective.
2: When faced with any issue that's bigger than yourself, it's much easier to sit back and do nothing than it is to do, well, anything, especially if that issue is a controversial one. Having an opinion is one thing, but voicing that opinion publicly, especially to an audience that may completely disagree with you, is scary. With any complex social issue, it can also be difficult to get involved simply because the problem seems so big and so overwhelming. That's how I felt when I started this podcast. How was I supposed to do this story justice when it's so incredibly expansive? I mean, we're talking about climate change, animal ethics, overdevelopment, disease epidemics, the list goes on. But speaking to these passionate rescuers and rehabilitators, made me realize the immense impact one person can have by attacking an issue on a micro level. Because of Dell alone, thousands of animals on the East End have been given a second chance at life. And while one could say that Dell's impact is microscopic compared to this planet's unsolved wildlife issues, I'm inclined to say that the creatures he saved would think differently.
0: I'm going to concern myself with these people here, and I'm going to push them until I get through to every one of these people and let them understand that we need to back off on our wildlife. These are living creatures. We're poisoning them. We're trapping them. We're entangling them. We're even going as far as drowning them. And I don't care who you are, that's not right.
2: So where do we begin?
0: It begins with you and me. It begins with our local government begins with somebody taking the responsibility and saying, we need to manage this, not only for our community, but for the sake of these loving and innocent animals, period. You're not just helping the people, let's help the animals. I mean, what better thing to be known for
2: The more I spoke to Dell, the more I understood the immense impact our local government can have on these issues. They may not have listened to Dell, but what if there were five Dells? Or 10? Or 20? I think more people would speak up if they were able to view these issues from a less anthropocentric point of view. That's why wildlife rescuers and rehabbers, people who act as a bridge of understanding between wildlife and regular people, are so important. Here's Jane again. The more you
3: involve the community in a rescue or a release, they get to understand about how to cohabitate with wildlife, especially the deer, and they become more understanding. They become more interested in making sure that the deer have a place to go. And I find that is happening much more today. People are much more interested in working with us than they are fighting us.
2: Rescuers like Jane also work to educate the community in non-rescue situations. Martyrs, a garden center in Bridgehampton, regularly hosts educational events led by wildlife rescuers and rehabbers.
3: They have us come every Sunday to talk to their clients about what you can do. You know, try to not put up eight-foot fencing. Try to use uh, certain things that are deer resistant. Put those in your garden. There's plenty of plantings, perennials, and all kinds of things that the deer don't like. You can have a beautiful garden and the deer won't come near them. So, you know, they are encouraging people to learn how to coexist with deer. The more we do it, the more we go to community events and talk about what you can do to coexist. I think it's making a difference. I really do.
2: For Dell, the most effective way to educate the public is by targeting those who are most receptive to learning new things children.
0: I educate adults too because they want the knowledge, but the kids, I never miss an opportunity. The first thing that comes to my mind is, oh my goodness, here's an opportunity for me to reach more young kids, more young minds, because the generation has already showed me that they care more for our environment than we did. This is a generation that is gonna care. They're gonna give a crap.
2: But for the rest of us adults, I think the number one thing we all need to do is acquaint ourselves with local wildlife rehabbers. Do some research, find the rescue center closest to you, and save their number. That way, if you ever come across an animal in need, you'll know who to call.
0: If you have a problem, discuss it with an expert who's not out to kill anything, but who's out to solve a problem for you and the animal. And if you say that person doesn't exist, you're looking at one. So that wouldn't be true. And there's more like me out there. Trust me.
2: And if you do, for some reason, have trouble finding someone like Dell, call him.
0: If anybody needs to call me, I don't care where in the world you are. I get calls from around the world at all hours of the night. You can always call me. My phone number, toll free, 844 save wild S-A-V-W-I-L-D. That's 728-9453. That's a 24-hour emergency hotline and information
2: center. You can find that number along with a handful of other wildlife rescue and rehabilitation resources in this episode's show notes. But before I go, I want to share some parting words from Dell.
0: Let's have a little bit more compassion. If we can't be compassionate to our wildlife, we don't have compassion for each other because we're life as well. How do I expect people to care for each other when they can't care for all the other living things in our world. And and that's why, Eve, I really enjoy my work because my clients are the animals. And they trust me. They don't second guess me. They respect me and they know I'm there to help them. And I dedicate myself to them. So it's a beautiful relationship. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty passionate about this, Eve. I don't think the animals need any more of our ridiculousness. We've given them enough. We really should start learning to care for one another, starting with our animals. Look, I'm not saying you got to get along with your neighbor. I'm just saying get along with the squirrel that's in your tree. Respect the animal. Then respect your neighbor. He'll respect you back.
2: I'm Eve Bishop. Dear Humans, thanks for listening. Dear Humans was written, produced, and edited by me, Eve Bishop. All music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Caitlin Kelleher, Kim Trang Tran, Elizabeth Afuso, Ruchi Talmore, Lauren Chapman, Jack Bishop, Laura Joyce Davis, Nate Davis, the Shelter in Place Alumni Writing Group, and my Fall 2021 Media Studies Peer Group. Thank you to KSPC 88.7 FM for allowing me to use the recording studio. And lastly, thank you to the Pomona College Summer Undergraduate Research Fund for helping to make this series possible. You can learn more about me and my work at evebishop.net.
1: strange animals podcast brings you weekly family-friendly episodes about surprising mysterious or just plain strange animals from the colossal squid to mothman tune in to discover your favorite animal subscribe to strange animals podcast through your favorite podcast app you know by now how podcasts work